find a spouse. That sounds solid. Um, Luke 19, beginning in verse 45. And then I'm going to do a little pump fake and get you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 22 as well. So I'm going to uh, trust that you're skilled enough to go in both places. And if you have one of those little Bible apps on your phone, you're just out of luck. You have to have quick, quick fingers, all right? Luke 19:45, and then uh, 1 Chronicles 22. I once heard a pastor say, uh, I think I was in college at this point, that uh, uh, a person, the cleanliness of a person's car is a reflection of the state of their soul. Uh, that is proof that pastors say silly things behind pulpits, all right? There's nothing true about that statement at, at all. Uh, at least I hope, hope not, uh, if you've seen my car. While we might not say that cleanliness is a reflection of holiness, we can say that a person's resonance is a reflection of who they are. Uh, you might think on a simple level of like a, a freshman college dorm room. Right, whatever that uh, individual as they move in, how they set up the art, what they put on their wall, what they're listening to, the movies, video games, whatever the case may be. It tells us something about the nature of the person that lives inside that place. Even more so when you extend this idea to a home, uh, you get a picture of the family that lives within by looking at what's on the walls and the way they've arranged their furniture and the, even the house they've chosen to purchase or build. Even more so, a king's residence is a reflection of the king. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the sticky idea that I want you to remember from this sermon. A king's residence is a reflection of the king. King's residence is a reflection of the king. We might think, this isn't a kingly, but uh, something like the Biltmore House. You go, you do the tour, and you get a sense of what was true about uh, the affluence, the taste of those who dwelt within that massive home. A space like the White House doesn't do this because we have such a cycle of presidents in our country. The constant turnover prevents it from really being a home. But in ancient times, a king's palace was a statement of the persona of the individual living inside. Everything from the location to the design to the ornamentation would tell you something about the person that lived inside. This morning, I want us to consider uh, the temple as God's palace. Consider the implications that Jesus points out of what's happened to his residence on earth and then some implications for us. If you're taking notes, you can do it under three headers. I told Lenny this morning, I have nine points and 35 minutes to do it in. All right, so you're gonna have to write fast. One main issue that Jesus exposes in this text. So you could just do the number one, one main issue. Then three ways Jesus exposes this issue. So one big issue, three ways Jesus exposes the issue, three ways the people respond, and then two implications for us. I'll give it to you again if you're taking notes. Uh, one main issue, three ways Jesus exposes this issue, uh, three ways the people respond to Jesus exposing the issue, and then two implications for us. First up, what is the main issue of this passage that Avery read for us a moment ago? I would summarize it this way. The issue is hollow rituals have replaced authentic worship. Hollow rituals have replaced authentic worship. 
We're going to spend the majority of our time actually on a singular verse, or verse or two, in Luke 19, verses 45 and 46. Because in some ways, all the rest that Avery read is exposing, is showing how the people responded to what Jesus does in verse 45 and 46. Which is, Jesus exposes the issue that your hollow rituals have taken the place of or have replaced authentic worship. To help us understand what's going on in Luke 19, I want, you, I want to read uh, 1 Chronicles 22. This gives us a sense of the setup of uh, the location of Jesus' actions in Luke 19. We're going to spend a lot of time in these books after the first of the year, so you can get familiar with them as a placeholder for you. In 1 Chronicles 22, we're nearing the end of David's life and his transition to his son Solomon, who will build, reside in uh, this place that God has promised. And we see some of David's instructions for how the temple would be laid out, what would dwell within. And I want you to hear these words under the header, a king's residence is a reflection of the king. Okay. So verse 1, David said, This is the house of the Lord our God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the resident aliens and those who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed stone cutters to cut finished stones for the building of God's house. David supplied a great deal of iron to make the nails for the doors and the gates and the fittings, together with an immeasurable quantity of bronze and innumerable cedar logs, because the Sidians and the Tyrians had brought a large quantity of cedar logs to David. And David said, I'm in verse 5, my son Solomon is young, and he's inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly great and famous and glorious in all the lands. Therefore, I'm going to make provision for it. So David made lavish preparations for it before his death. Then he summoned his son Solomon, and he charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. My son, David said to Solomon, it was in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But the Lord, word of the Lord came to me. You've shed much blood. You've waged great wars. You're not to build a house for my name because you've shed so much blood on the grounds before me. But a son will be born to you, and he will be a man of rest. I will give him rest from the surrounding enemies, for his name will be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you succeed in building the house of the Lord your God as he has said to you. Above all, may the Lord give you insight and understanding when he puts you in charge of Israel, so that you may keep the law of the Lord. Then you will succeed if you carefully follow these statutes and ordinances that the Lord commanded for Moses, Moses for Israel. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged. Notice, I've taken great pains to provide for the house of the Lord 3,775 tons of gold, 37,750 tons of silver, and bronze and iron that can't even be weighed because there's so much of it. I've also provided timber and stone because you will need to add more to them. You also have many workers, stone cutters, masons, carpenters, people skilled in every kind of work in gold and silver and bronze and iron beyond number. Now begin the work and may the Lord be with you. A king's residence 
is a reflection of the king. The temple that's promised here in 1 Chronicles 22 was a reflection of at least three kingly features in the day. First, it was a reflection of, of the builder. It was a reflection of David and Solomon here. Notice the, the ornamentation, the weight in gold. D David is saying, I, I did this. I provided this. And what is going to be built here is going to reflect his wisdom, his power, his prosperity. It testified to the unique role of these kings, their splendor and wealth and greatness. But more so, the temple was a testimony of the nation of Israel. It was something of their national identity marker. This shows that God dwells among this people. And the brilliance of the temple is a marker that we are unlike any other nation. But then thirdly, and more so, it was meant to reflect the greatness of God. It was meant to draw your attention to the splendor and might and glory of God. The furniture, the fixtures, the, everything in the temple had symbolic meaning. And it was designed to aid the ancient Israelites in worshiping God. We would see here how great God is and how miraculous it is that he would dwell among his people. And in fact, this notion of God dwelling among his people is one of the ways that you could kind of tie a thread throughout the story of your Bible. The Bible is actually asking and answering the question, how's God going to dwell with people? But you think back with me to the garden. The Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 is presented as a great temple, a place where God dwells among his people in splendor and might. But because of the sin of the people, they are kicked out of the garden. And remember the words, I think they'll be on the screen. This is from Genesis 3, verse 24. After the sin, after Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden. And we see God taking responsibility here. He drove the man out to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back to the tree of life. The question that the Bible asks and answers is, how are sinful people ever going to get back to the presence of God? How are they, notice the language here in Genesis 3 and 4, it's a, a, sword, a flaming sword that turns every which way. The implication is you can't escape the sword. It's going to get you. So the question is, how are sinful people going to dwell with God and escape the sword? How are we ever going to make that happen? Well, the temple was a partial answer to this question. It asked and answered the question by saying, something's going to go under the sword for you. And if something goes under the sword for you, then it's going to make it possible for you to, to dwell with God again, to be right with God. Hence, if you remember the furnishings in the temple, you would have this garden imagery, the cherubim guarding this holy presence of God. But the temple was only a partial answer, and it was a broken answer. Case in point, Luke 19. Look with me in verse 45 and 46. Jesus goes into the temple 
And Luke records, he begins to throw out those who are buying and selling in the temple. Verse 46, he says, it's written, this is pointing us, most of your Bibles are going to have a boldface type or capital letters, or it's going to be indented. We're quoting an Old Testament passage here. It's written, my house is to be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. There was something about the king's residence that was meant to evoke dwelling with God, prayer, intimacy with God, and it's been transported to something, it's been manufactured into something far less. Now, we need to take a quick aside here for some in the room. Uh, This passage is familiar, the cleansing of the temple text. However, it is uh, controversial. And this is one of the go-to passages that liberal scholars will point to as a gotcha. This proves that the Bible isn't true. Because if you know anything about this passage, you know that the synoptic gospels there, I'm talking about Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this scene here. Whereas John's gospel places it uh, at the outset of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It's recorded in John 2. So one particular stumbling block for you as you're reading through the gospels is you're like, well, But when did this actually happen? What took place here? Does this mean the Bible authors are just wacky? Their chronology just doesn't make sense? Or are they conflicted? Are they telling different stories? I think there are two uh, equally viable answers to the question. Uh, One, some suggest uh, that this incident happened twice. That it happened at the outset of Jesus' ministry. He cleansed the temple. And then it happened again to bookend his ministry when he returned back to Jerusalem. I think that's an entirely plausible explanation, and many scholars with a high view of Scripture would hold that explanation. You could envision this as been three years if it was at the outset of his ministry, and then him returning back at the end. It's very likely that the thing he cleansed and exposed could bubble up again and be happening again, and then him expose it again. I, I actually prefer the explanation Uh, The other alternative, which is John strategically places this to make a topical point in his gospel. John is writing not so much for chronology's sake, but thematically, holding up Jesus as the bread of life sent from heaven, picking these different images. And so his gospel is not arranged uh, chronologically, but thematically. And he places this at the outset of his gospel to hold up Jesus as a truer and better temple. Whatever you do with the placement of these passages, I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference in the importance of this episode. The synoptic gospels and John are trying to capture something important about what Jesus is doing to this temple. What's what's in view here? Notice, Where Donnie was last week at the end of Luke 19, we have this unique contrast. Jesus, the one whom John describes as dwelling among his people, rides into Jerusalem. The object of the worship to which the temple was meant to point is right there among them. And he comes as a king. Again, the reality that Donnie showed us last week. But look back at verse 44. What's what's the issue? The issue is that he presents himself as a king, but the people were not aware. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. 
They didn't see Jesus as the true and rightful king. Verse 44 reflects, you did not realize or recognize the time when God visited you or the time when God dwelled among you. And to heighten this contrast of the king coming but not being recognized, we have this scene. Jesus riding in, going to the temple. And in some sense, this should be, you, you ride in and you, you sit on your throne, right? This is the moment you've been waiting for. In good frozen fame, this is coronation day, right? You ride into the temple, you sit on your throne, and all worship falls to you. But instead of riding and sitting, Jesus overthrows what is happening in the temple. Because the tangible place of God's dwelling among his people is a mess. Now, what's critiqued here by Jesus in verse 46? He doesn't so much critique the, the buying and selling, as this would have been a common practice of worshipers in the day. Uh, imagine those who were tra- living in outlying villages who were coming to the temple to offer sacrifices. It would have been impossible for them to travel with those sacrifices. So we would set up a means by which they could just purchase their sacrifices when they arrived. This is very helpful. And the temple required a temple tax. Only certain coins are acceptable in the temple. And this was a bigger issue in Jesus' day than it is in our day because the outlying villages would have uh, some domestic currency that would not be accepted in Jerusalem. So you would have to bring this more domestic currency and exchange it uh, to get the currency that would be acceptable for you to pay the temple tax. And this is all happening all over the place buying and selling and exchanging. So what's the issue? I think there are two two things that Jesus is pointing to. First would be uh, the people taking high commissions for human gain. Jesus calls it a, a den of thieves. In other words, what's happening isn't so much, I mean, in, in many ways, actually setting up shop to purchase sacrifices is an act of service to the people. This is really good. This is really helpful. Just buy it when you get here. This is a means of serving. Why are they thieves? Well, because they're, they're, they're taking commissions. Uh, Josephus records that the commissions were as high as 12% that they were taking as they would exchange this. So you got people who have figured out a way to manufacture the system to make a bunch of cash. And more importantly, so a den of thieves, and more importantly is the placement of this act. All of this is happening in the temple. And this seems to be what uniquely draws Jesus' scorn. John 2 records it this way, and I think the way John arranges the text highlights this reality. In verse 13, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14, notice how John arranges his sentence structure here. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He also found money changers sitting there, highlight in the temple. So after making a quart of whips, he drove everyone out of the temple and their sheep and their oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things, and again, notice the focus on the location, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. The king's residence is a reflection of the king. And in the king's residence here, you have thousands of people buying and selling 
Josephus recorded one Passover week around the time of Jesus' death that there were 255,000 animals sold just in that week. 255,000 animals sold and sacrificed. So you could picture financial training floor. Uh, if you've ever traveled to certain parts of the world and been to a market, you have a picture of this. It's just sheer chaos. Humanity everywhere, people everywhere, money and animals and the smells. You can imagine what's happening. And it's, it's, it's misplaced. Why is this in the temple? This seems to be what Jesus highlights. You're supposed to use this place as a place for sacred worship, for prayer. But it's been replaced by hollow acts of buying and selling, making money, and earning commissions. The people were continuing to engage in these religious acts, but they'd lost sight of their ultimate purpose, which could not be more evident since the very object they should have been directing worship toward was among them, and they totally missed it. So how does Jesus expose the issue? The issue, hollow rituals in the place of authentic worship. How does Jesus highlight something's out of whack here? Well, the first way he highlights it, I told you I'd give you three. First way he highlights it is he turns over their tables. He just flips over the tables. This is the most obvious action in the passage. He uses a whip to scatter the, ele- uh, the animals. The picture I have here, um, you ever played a board game? Like uh, Monopoly would be a case in point. You have two different Monopoly style. You know, the person that just flops all their money together is no big deal. And then the person that neatly arranges their money, right? All right, that's the way to do life, right? Neatly arrange your money. If you're just a slot, that's ridiculous, all right? Uh, so the neat money arranger here, and I know you've never played with somebody that takes games too seriously, but if you've ever played with somebody that takes games too seriously and they're like 10 years old and they get really mad and they just flip over the game, right? The coins scatter everywhere. The money goes everywhere. You can hear this passage. Jesus just scatters it all. He upends their activity. Secondly, he quotes a passage that references all the nations coming to worship God. So he flips over their tables, and then he quotes a really interesting passage. If you get to the end, you're like, man, they're like really set on wanting to kill this dude. What's going on? I mean, somebody flips over your tables, scatters your money, that's going to tick you off, right? But I think there's a bigger issue. Their anger is attributable to a reality. Uh, Mark quotes it in Mark 11, this contrasting scene. He began to teach them and say, he adds a phrase here, my house will be called a house of prayer, and then this is the phrase that's added, for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Uh, Look in your Bibles, you're very likely to have a little superscript by uh, verse 46 anyway. If you look down, if if you're new to the Bible, you can look in your center column or down at the bottom. Mine has a little superscript letter C that points me at the bottom of the text, and it points me back to Isaiah 56. And the bold in my Bible is reminding me that it's quoting from somewhere else. So if you've you've wondered, like, dude, that seems like pastors are doing stuff that I just can't do. Really, all we're doing is cross-referencing passages that your Bible is really helping you do. So you can do this very same thing on Monday morning. Notice where this points you to in Isaiah 56. Even those I bring to my holy mountain 
and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. So what is in view here isn't merely that the Israelites have replaced hollow ritual for authentic worship, but they've really done a disservice to the worship that the nations were meant to be able to offer. All this practice is happening most likely in the court of the Gentiles, the biggest zone when you get into the temple complex. It's where the Gentiles, where the nations are supposed to be able to come. One writer describes it, they're supposed to be able to see a shop window for the glory of God. So the nations are meant to go into the court of Gentiles and be able to watch Israelite worship and say, huh, I want that God. I want to worship and follow that God. And instead, the nations are showing up, and they're seeing frantic activity. They're seeing chaos. They're seeing thievery. The place that was meant to be a house of worship for the nations is not. In fact, it's doing a disservice. The common belief among the Jews in Jesus' day was that when the Messiah came, he was actually going to purge the Gentiles from the temple. But here, symbolically, Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to make it possible for all people to have access. Through the coming sacrifice, this whole sacrificial system is literally going to be turned upside down, and Gentiles are going to have ready access to worship the one true and living God. How's that going to happen? Idea number three, what he exposes. So he, he turns over their tables, he quotes a passage that says all the nations are going to be able to do this, And then he says that he himself is the temple. He says that he is the temple. John makes this claim explicit in his uh, recounting of this scene or a scene very similar to this one, verse 18. The Jews replied to him, what sign are you going to give us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it up in three days. (laughs) The Jews said, Hey, Jesus. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, but I would have said, hey, Jesus. The temple took 46 years to build. How are you going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Jesus upends their hollow religiosity by exposing the fact that he is the intersection of heaven and earth. He is the dwelling of God come among humanity. He is the means by which people are going to be made right with God. The communion picture that we'll celebrate in a moment and the question that Genesis 3, 24 asks and answers, how do we escape the sword? The answer is by faith in the one who went under the sword on your behalf. You escape the sword. You dwell with God. You have fellowship with him, not through a temple built with human hands, but through the one purpose from the foundation of the world to come and live the life that you could not live and die the death that you deserved. He went under the sword for you so that you would not have to. He says, I'm the temple. How do the people respond? Three responses from the people very quickly. First, in verses 47 and 48, we see anger rather than humility. Anger rather than humility. 
the chief leaders, chiefs, uh, priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people, they're looking for a way to kill him. This is going to define what happens over the course of this coming week of Jesus' life. But they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what Jesus was saying. So they respond with anger rather than humility. They respond, secondly, with questioning rather than submission. Questioning rather than submission. They ask this curious question at the beginning of chapter 20. Well, who's back? Where, did, where does your authority come from? And he points them, he kind of catches them. I'm not going to exposit this passage because we've actually done it recently here at Christ Fellowship, this very same scene. But he, he, he traps them, as it were, because they revere John as a prophet. Where did his baptism come from? Well, if they say it came from humans, then that's uh, undermining them because they revere John as a prophet. But if they say his baptism came from God, then Jesus can ask, well, to whom did John point? Well, John pointed to Jesus, the one who would take away the sins of the world. So they're trapped. Rather than humbling themselves in response to Jesus turning the tables on their hollow worship, they respond with questioning, attempting to provoke Jesus. And then lastly, rejection rather than worship. Rejection rather than, than worship. This is the scene of the vineyard owner and the tenant farmers. We have a very similar parable that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus says, going away, pictures himself in this manner, and he comes back looking for fruit. Here, particularly, fruit from the nation of Israel. But, but he doesn't find it. And the text here highlights this beautiful picture. He's going to send his very son. But the people continue to reject and ultimately kill that son, which leads to this quote again of an Old Testament text. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. So we see this rejected stone. This, uh, the temple imagery is here, here is beautiful. You would have stonemasons that are fashioning and cutting stones. And if something happened to the stone, it got broken, it got chipped, you would just discard it, right? Because uh, not like in our day where you could you know, use tools to, to make it flat again. It was just an unusable stone. And if we set the foundation on a stone that's tilted or cracked or broken, then everything else is going to fall apart. So it's very common. We're going to discard a stone. And Jesus pictures himself as the stone that Israel has discarded, the one that they've stumbled over, the one that they have no place for. But in God's divine economy, that stone that has been rejected is the means that God is going to use to establish the cornerstone on a new and better temple. And this is where this passage has street cred for us. Because the question becomes, what is that new and better temple? What is Jesus building now? And the answer is, he's building a temple out of his people. There's no longer a temple made with human hands fashioned by human stones, but those who respond in faith to Jesus Christ are, Peter, Peter's going to write, being built together as living stones to offer spiritual worship to God. 
So how do we think about applying this passage? I mean, in some ways, the application of the story is simply don't do what they did. Don't, don't be angry rather than humble. Don't question rather than submit. Don't reject rather than worship. But maybe more specifically, we could say it two ways, two implications for us. One, we have to recognize and reject hollow rituals that replace authentic worship. We have to recognize and reject hollow rituals that hinder true worship. The application of this passage is very personal. It's, it's not national. We're not the, the, the nation of Israel. God's people are now dispersed among the nations. And, and the application isn't even in buildings. We, we don't have a physical temple. And while this building is a place that we worship together, and it would be good and right to have appropriate applications for what you do in physical places like church buildings, the location of God's activity, his dwelling among his people now, is you and me, the people that have been saved by grace. God's people are now God's temple. Paul makes this point explicit in his letter to the Corinthian church. I'll read from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Which leads us to, to ask the question, like, what, how would I destroy the temple? How would, how would I be guilty of the very things that Jesus upends in Luke 19? And we could think of a host of implications of this, busying ourselves with the wrong stuff, hollow-shelled religiosity that lacks intimacy with God. Certainly, Paul is going to apply this in the area of sexual sin. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 6, he's going to write, don't be bound together with unbelievers. We're the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. As God's temple, God's people are now a reflection of the king. As God's temple, God's people are now a reflection of the king of the king. So, if last week you hear the sermon on Luke 19 and you're like, yes, right, Jesus is the king, what is that meant to produce in you? Like, what's the fruit of that reality? It's not mere verbal affirmation of that, but it is that the temple of your body would reflect the kingship of Jesus. That your attitudes, your actions, your fight against sin would be a means by which you proclaim, I want to reflect the king. How do we do that? We do it by humbling ourselves when God upends the tables in our life. Idea number two. We recognize and reject patterns that hinder true worship. And we humble ourselves when God turns over the tables in our own life. 
not responding in anger, questioning, or rejection. But if the tables of our hollow rituals get turned over, if we get exposed as worshiping pseudo-gods as the one true and living God, the answer for us isn't to dig our heels deeper into religious performance or hollow rituals, but it is to humble ourselves, to assume that God flipping the tables in our life is his doing, and to ask, what is he doing? What's he provoking in me? What does he want me to see or feel or do so that I am not guilty of the pharisaical response that has the dwelling of God right here and misses it? Or worse, turns God's temple into something manufactured with human hands and not a glorious picture not a reflection of the king. This morning, I want to invite the band to come, and uh, they're going to lead us uh, to sing this morning to that king. And as they do,